millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. If you like live music, if you like the specter of live stage special effects, especially in the world of rock music, and if you like the story of an individual making it big against the odds, then this podcast is for you. It's a tricky one for me, because if you hadn't noticed already, with a few exceptions, I'm doing what most people launching a podcast do. I'm starting with my closer acquaintances and friends. It's easier that way, and to be truthful, more fun. Less stress, if you will, than trying to have a conversation with someone you've never talked to before or shared any meaningful time with. Fortunately, I know a lot of really interesting people. But did you ever meet someone later in life and connect so quickly and with such ease that it seemed like you've been friends since childhood? Doug Adams is absolutely my brother from another mother, but I met him much later in life. And funnily enough, he's exactly five days younger than I, so I get to rub it in that I'm his elder until the day I die. But I better tell you who he is first, because you're likely to have never heard of him unless you work behind the scenes in live music, in which case then you would consider him a legend and a tour de force in pyrotechnology and any other kind of live special effect. I'll let him give you his list of superstars he's worked with later in the podcast. It's impressive, to say the least. But here's how we met. We were both standing at the baggage carousel at the Toronto airport, and he simply looked at me and walked up and asked if I was Survivor Man. From there, when I got past my initial narcissism of being that guy from TV, I finally asked him what he did. He said, live music effects, and that was all. So I immediately took up my own cause again and started blabbering on about my Mother Earth live music project and the need for big special effects. He said, well, let's meet for lunch and chat about it. I didn't think anything more of it, but I'm always willing to check out an opportunity. A friend at the time said they Googled him and he was big news, but I didn't want to know. I just wanted to know if he liked my live show ideas and if he has any input into how I can make it happen. Who he is or where he comes from doesn't matter. I don't want to judge and I don't need to be intimidated. I didn't realize until quite some time later that he was the guy in the world when it came to special effects, but by then it was too late to be intimidated. We had already realized we were best of friends, and so whatever accolades he might have boasted, though you would have to goad him to get those kinds of names he can drop out. But I didn't care. In fact, let me digress for a second because I think it's possibly a good way to be when potentially getting involved with someone of high prestige. I honestly never care about their accolades. 
whether it was Slash playing guitar for me or me playing harmonica for Alice Cooper or meeting the Queen, yes, I did that. What I think you should care about is are they good people? And if they're going to work with you, do they get you and your work, your art? So yes, Doug Adams worked with Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, Pink Floyd, and Metallica. Okay, good for him. But if he's going to work with me, does he get my art? Maybe that's just me. But I think it's good advice to never let yourself feel intimidated by someone's professional stature. Doug is an inventor and an artist and a driven, ambitious person who pulled himself out of a background and childhood that could have seen him land in jail. And instead, he became a superstar albeit behind the scenes, in the world of live rock and roll. Now I need to slip in my disclaimer on this one. Yep, it comes with the warning of expletives. Lots of them. F-bombs and mother F-bombs and very politically incorrect language while explaining a story. So please, if bad language offends you, maybe go listen to the CBC or NPR. I can't make apologies for the expletives, but I can warn you that this conversation contains them. In part one... We'll explore Doug's past and where he could have ended up and move into the early days of the 1980s live rock in Toronto, finally landing on Doug's beginnings of literally playing with fire. In part two, we discover the journey that took him from tiny little shows with Toronto bands to doing special effects for the biggest rock stars in the world. To set the stage, we sat outside before the pandemic, on his deck on the shores of Georgian Bay, And while we conversed, a massive thunderstorm dumping sheets of water came upon us. It just poured. So you might hear that in the background. But we carried on, protected as we were by the overhanging roof and our friendship. Okay, these are the non-expletive words of special effects master Doug Adams. Because I was going the way of... Uh, being a full patch member of, of a club yeah, back sure. then, really. Yeah. And that's, and I, I was going to get to it. I've been yeah. thinking, you know what? I'm, all my friends are riding, they're all doing this and I'm going to do that. But again, I was getting into pyrotech and doing special effects and doing all those things. And that was my focus. We're going to make this better. part was the creativity, which is an extension of art, my painting and everything as a kid. The music got me into something and I enjoyed it. And I really felt something when I play guitar and I discovered, holy shit, I can sing too. I didn't even, you know, it was an accident. Get into the action. what you think this was for? It's not about freedom and it's not about war. Now, I almost sound as good as you. I'll never sound as good as you, Doug. No. You still got something going. (laughs) I often feel sometimes like everything Doug does and has is just that one, two or three levels above mine. I'm I'm, I'm like hovering along behind you at that. I've been very lucky, right place at the right time, pretty much for everything. Actually, that's a great place to start because I've been struggling with where to start. You're a more difficult interview for me because we're brothers. We're friends, yeah. And... I just said brothers. You said friends. Yeah, I know, but little, I, okay, it's brothers. We're <laughs> brothers. We are brothers. Uh, whereas with a, like a stranger, I can just go. So tell me, you know, how did your career start, kind of thing? And I'm like, how do I talk to Doug? I mean, this. I plus I know shit. Yeah, <laughs> that, that I can't talk about it. That was that's like a great place to start because you you said um, 
You've been lucky. You have not been lucky, and neither have I, really. Yeah, I mean, that's I, true. That's I, true. That's I correct that a lot yeah, of times. It wasn't, yeah. It wasn't easy. No. It wasn't easy. Uh, our, our connectivity, I mean, we met later in life, but our connectivity is is such that that I'm, I was in the West End of Toronto. You're in the East End of Toronto, Scar, in Scarberia, and I was in Mimico. Back in that in the day, so we're we're in the seventies now. You and I are teenagers. We're in the seventies. You're in Scarberia. I'm in Mimico. They were both considered kind of rough places in Toronto, and I was thinking the only two other really sort of Toronto rough places at that time would have been Parkdale. Remember Parkdale uh, was was rough, and then and even Jane Finch had not yet become scary like it did in the eighties. Jane and Finch was really rough, but in the seventies it was only. It was beginning. Yeah, there, there was a couple areas. There's an area, Tuxedo Courts, which was, uh, I was actually a lifeguard for a while. So I had to clean pools and do all these so things. So was I. I didn't oh, know you. Yeah. Oh my oh, God. That's hilarious. Yeah. So one of the places that I had to go to was on the outskirts of Scarborough, which was at Markham Road and Lawrence area. So it's a lot of projects. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, the pool there was, you know, something to... Something to see when you, you show up in the morning, you see a TV in the bottom of the pool or a cinder block or, you know, all your gear that you've had around there to clean your pool with. And it happens every single day. But that was a rough area. Another one was another project area, Victoria Park and right. Shepherd, that, that area. Or Victoria Park and even higher than that, uh, Finch. Victoria Park and Finch, that's actually the worst area. Uh, another place I, I lifeguarded. So that's how I discovered those two other by being a lifeguard. Yeah, by being a lifeguard, taking care of some of these places because there was a lot of a lot of lifeguards that couldn't handle. They would never send a girl there to take care of the, those pools because they get harassed and everything else. So they always sent somebody, a guy, and they sent me a couple of times because I guess they knew that I would deal with it. I was a no bullshit guy, and I, I you know, I kind of knew Scarborough yeah. and that Mimico, that kind of vibe already, so I could handle it, but it was no fun. I think the expectation, or the, at least the cliched expectation, is that of course downtown's going to be tough. And I suppose, I mean, in my mom's time, Cabbage Town was considered very rough. And I suppose Jarvis and Queen, right, classic for homelessness and so on, considered rough. But I don't think people realized some of these outskirts. It was just a way of life. It was just blue collar. Yeah. You know, and it, was, it was just that element. And your dad was tough. He was tough. Yeah, he was a tough guy. He was a martial artist. He came from Glasgow, Scotland. Grew up in the uh, Hell's Kitchen, Glasgow, Scotland huh. uh, on Red Road, which is Projects. He was a toughie. He fought a lot all my life as a kid seeing him. Yeah, I, I remember you telling me stories of even at... 75 years of age, he'd yeah. be in the bar. He'd be the well, last so guy. He died, he died at 71. But 71? Said, okay. Yeah, the last the time 70s. he had a fight, he was 69 years old. So I remember, <laughs> yeah, because he was working for me at the time. Like, so he retired and he was a welder and steam fitter. And then he, my mom said, okay, give him a job, give him, get him out of the house. So he started working for me, doing some fabrications and what have you. But uh, he just never lost that edge to him. So he would still go to the bars. And if anybody, any loudmouth, Punk says anything to any of his friends. He always goes to his friend's defense. Yeah. And he goes, you know, hey, what are you saying to my friend? And of course, the young guy goes, hey, old man, shut up, right? And he's like, really? <laughs> and then he does what he does. This is bizarre because you and I have had a million conversations over a million beers and glasses of wine. And my dad worked for me too. I had, really? I, yeah, I, I forgot that your father had done some work for you later on in yeah. life. Yep. I think I remember you mentioning that. Same thing. Later on in life, my dad in his, you know, retirement sort of phase and in the, in the 60s phase came and worked for me. It's kind of like, yeah, keep him busy, get him doing something. And I was running wilderness, uh, wilderness lodges at the time. He loved fishing. So he would come up and build bunk beds and stay in the deck and, uh, and Do fish. Do jobs, yeah. 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 
And that's yeah, pretty much the same thing as what my dad did. He just kind of just hung around and did stuff and tried to keep busy. So painting the picture of you in that era and that age in the 70s in Toronto, let's just say there's some paths that we could have gone down and some paths we did go down that uh, we're not going to talk about right now. But suffice it to say, we could have gone down those paths and stayed on them. But instead... For me in Mimico, and I know I'm not going to keep comparing myself to you, but for me in Mimico, it was definitely, I saw another path that was different than if I'd stayed on the one I was going on. And the same thing for you. So what was it that diverted you, shall we say, into what eventually became an incredibly prolific life in rock and roll? What said, okay, I'm from Scarborough. I'm hanging with these people. I'm doing these things. A lot of this could be dangerous but I want to do this. So this, mm. this is what, what made that happen? Uh, two things. Well, three things, music, martial arts, and my mom, you know, my dad was a bad motherfucker and you know, we were surrounded by bad motherfuckers everywhere. Yeah. We, and, and all our uh, friends, parents were, but the guys, you know, the fathers and stuff, but the, my mom was an incredible woman. She was tough as nails, but she was all heart. And she always steered me in the right path. She was all for me getting into music. I was an artist as a kid too. I took to music very quickly and she said, well, I'll get you into lessons for sure with guitar. And so I started very early and uh, martial arts. Uh, you're going to have to explain this one because I don't get the connection from martial arts to music. But Well, I started with martial arts first. So I started, or is it about discipline? For example? It's discipline. Yeah, okay. it's, it is discipline. So I started with martial arts since I was uh, four. That was always in me as the discipline part, as you're saying. The music part was the creativity, which is an extension of art, my painting and everything as a kid. The music got me into something and I enjoyed it. And I really felt something when I play guitar and I discovered, holy shit, I can sing too. I didn't even, you know, it was an accident. It gave me something to look forward to. And I'm going, you know, I don't need to go in and do a B and E tonight with my friends in this factory. I'm going to rehearse tonight with my band. We're like 15 years old, but we're still trying to think, oh, we can do this, we can do this. And you have that feeling and that rush and something to achieve. The peer pressure draw Oh, what do you do? What are you, you better than us now? Like, come on, man, just come on with us. Like, you know, I remember people saying that to me in my early twenties, like, oh, what are you too good to hang out with us now, yeah. Stroud? Are you scared? Yeah. yeah. Oh, shit, so yeah. what about that draw? Why well, didn't it pull you? Okay. Here's why. Because I did some crazy shit when I was a kid, you know, and, uh, and I kind of regretted it. And there was times there where I knew what was going to go down. I, and it was mostly B and E's, a lot of the shit that they did. So they wanted me to go in on one and I'm going, it was our school. And I said, no, I, I don't like this. I don't, why, why, what's the purpose of what, what are we going to get? Why are we doing this? And it's more vandalism and just, you know, being punks, right? I said, I'm not going to do it. I don't have a good feeling. I don't want to do it. Didn't do it. They all got caught. They all got arrested, but they all went to juvenile. Ju juvenile ju detention center. Ju juvenile detention center. So they all went there for six months and stuff like that. So I didn't go. Wow. I was the only one. That's a bullet dodged. Only one. Later on in life, another incident happened like that and a couple of my friends died. So, and another one, I, <laughs> the Brewers retail heist. Oh my God, my father was a Brewers retail manager. <laughs> okay, was, was he at Kennedy and Eglinton by any uh, chance? He knew that, we, he used to tell me about the scary stores and the rough that stores and the, the Kennedy one. and Eglinton was infamous yeah. amongst beer store managers. That's right. So it was one of the first ones they had there, also the first Tim Hortons and the first Big Boys restaurant Wow, was all in that corner. Yeah. Uh, just lost my path. Well, the, the Brewers Retail Heist. Oh yeah, the Brewers Retail Heist. Okay, here's the thing. So my friends pulled it off, 17 years old, right? Armed robbery, I don't even know where they got the guns, but I remember them all talking about it prior and they're trying to get people to go in on it, right? Jeff Mitchell, I'm gonna say your name, uh, Mitch. So he was, he was a tough, 
tough fucking kid. Always had older brothers, probably the toughest kid in, in the neighborhood. So he was like, come on, Dougie, come on, you fucking pussy. You're going to do this with us. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to fucking do this. You're out of your mind. And I'm thinking he's fucked in his head. He's just stoned. I'm going to just, no way they're going to do this. And then it, you don't hear about it for a while. And then all of a sudden it happens. And it's like, holy shit, they went for it. So it was like five of the guys, him and his two brothers and, and two other guys. And they went and did it. And sure enough, he got caught at 17 years old. Uh, he got sentenced to 14 years. Oh. So I went to visit a friend of mine in Millhaven and he was there on another charge. And uh, I went there with some of his family just to see him at Thanksgiving because you can have your friends and stuff. And I'm sitting there at the cafeteria and that's where you pretty much do everything. Sure. And this other guy throws down a, a tray right next to my friend, who's a big guy. He's a big, tough guy, big biker guy. And goes, Adams, what are you doing here? The guy that slammed this tray down went, I said, I know you. He goes, Adams, it's Mitch. I went, Jeff, Jeff Mitchell. And I stupid me, what are you doing here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, Brewers Retail, remember? I'm thinking, how long have you been in here? Yeah. It's 16 years at that time because it got extended because he was bad inside sure, and everything yeah. else. So, he, so he, at that time he'd been in there 16, 16 years. 16 years. I totally forgot about him. Wow. And then, so you see a guy like that and that was a reality check that of, you know, for reasons why I didn't do it way back yeah. then. And you just Vindication. saw it. Indications, you just get the feeling, you know, you said you got those feelings, right? It's just like, you know what? This isn't the time to do this and I don't feel right about it. And there was a lot of that. I have a conscience too. So I just, and I didn't like it. And I'm, I'm thinking, where, which road am I going to go? It didn't seem like it, it wasn't achievable to, to be a musician or be a rock star, or whatever back then. I mean, I really felt that, oh, you know what, this, I think we could, we could do this or we could definitely get attention. And so I, I focused in on music a lot. You are inadvertently referencing your gut instinct on a lot of, as you talk, right? Which is very powerful. But I think I remember you telling me one time, and this is interesting, this, this was new to me, that conversely, from the peer pressure saying, come on, what are you, a pussy? Let's go, let's go do this. There was a time when that sector of society that you enjoyed and were part of also said, you know what, Dougie? No, you go this way. You, you stick with rock and roll. We're still brothers, you just, you, but you stick with rock and roll. Is that? Yeah, they supported me. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, pretty much most of them did. Like, of course, the guys like Jeff Mitchell, that, the, you know, who's in, who was probably inside still, didn't with him. He didn't give a shit. If you, sure. if you weren't in, you were still a pussy. But the, a lot of my other friends, they, they thought it was great that I was getting into music. And they were coming, hanging out at the gigs and they're helping me be roadies or try to be a lighting guy or a sound guy if they weren't musically inclined. And it was a bonding thing with all my friends too. So they were all very supportive. Did you, I've gotten on the odd occasion, Stroud, you're the one that got out, man. You did it. I, the you very words I heard so many times from all my friends because I was going the way of uh, being a full patch member of a club yeah, back sure. then, really. Yeah. And that's, and I- I was going to get to it. I've been yeah. thinking, you know what? I'm, all my friends are riding. They're all doing this and I'm going to do that. But again, I was getting into pyrotech and doing special effects and doing all those things. And that was my focus. Now, I know that, that uh, the desire to be a rock star was there. Always. Actually, we should sit with that first, just for a moment. Let's just for a moment, let's go there because that's before special effects. Yep. What was it? What was, you were going after metal, right? You were, you were looking at, like I was- I was, I was getting was, pushed into metal. Okay. I liked heavy metal. But before, when I started, I, I started in cover bands and then I did a band called ACM, like since I was 17. ACM. Yeah, 17 and 18 doing that. And that's when I was doing all the clubs, but I was writing original music. So There's a Toronto cover band. Toronto cover band. ACM. Well, it's yeah, a Toronto band. Rock but band, we, yeah. we, we 
probably half of our music was original. We'd always say we did all these covers, but half of the, like half of the night was original. We snuck them in all the time, right? It's just said, yeah, it was another Judas Priest song or yeah. whatever. Well, and, yeah, because it's all about the bar manager who's like, why, why, don't play your original shit, you know? Exactly. And so we didn't. Yeah, yeah that's right, we didn't. That was, a, that was a new tune from Judas Priest. Yeah. I loved it. I mean, uh, that was a part that showed me that I could get out. Yeah. And, I, and I was making a living and I was getting paid. And it was cool. And I was being creative and I was moving on to the next thing. If you can see the bigger picture, getting 30 bucks for a night to play, could you could say, well, this one day, this could be $3,000 That's right. to play for a night. Yeah. And you can see that bigger picture. What, what was the band after ACM? The band after ACM was Witch Killer. Witch Killer picked me up. That was second. Yeah, that was second. That's a big, heavy, and that's your muscle phase yeah, too, that was, right? Yeah, I, I was a big guy then. I was working, I had a lot of big friends. So I was working out in the gym and I uh, had a little bit of beef on me and a long, long, long hair almost down on my ass. I guess it could be a heavy metal look, although it was a, just a rock band I was doing before. But uh, these guys were full on metal. And they had a deal going with Metal Blade Records, Brian Slagle, and they were looking for a singer. They were auditioning a bunch of singers. They came out and saw me at the Shoddy Air in, uh, in Hull. Quebec, just outside of Ottawa. They said, hey, listen, would you be interested in joining us or auditioning for us? Uh, I said, yeah, let me think about it, you know, because ACM was my band. So I'm thinking, fuck, why would I want to join another band for? I don't know, I just talked to a few people about it and they said, you should go for it. I did. And it was fun. It was cool. It was totally heavy, 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 but it was totally fun. That's the black leather and the flying V guitars. Absolutely. Yeah, the studs and everything. And yeah, it was cool. Yeah, and you weren't lead guitar player at this time. You I was were not. lead singer. I was hired strictly as a singer. They did not want me to play guitar because uh, the guitarist yeah. didn't want me to. Well, and there's also a look too. It's like, no, no, the lead singer needs to just grab the microphone. Yeah, and, and I, I agree. I agreed. Yeah, uh, you know, that. in that heavy metal thing, it like when I was doing the, you know, with ACM and the rock band and I could have a guitar in my hand and it suited it. But with that metal look back then, you just have a separate lead singer. So it's a constant flow watershed from Robert Plant, the consummate lead singer. He does not hold a guitar. Yeah. He can pick up a harmonica on one song, but mm-hmm. other than that, yeah. just sing. Or an acoustic or something, then put it away. But yeah. yeah. And what's after Witch Killer? Witch Killer was Reckless. So that's- an- Another band I auditioned yeah. Is that Was that, that, now to me, I really didn't, uh, my apologies, I didn't know about Witch Killer, but I certainly knew about Reckless yeah. in the day. That's because being Canadian. So- Funny enough, Witch Killer didn't have a record deal in Canada. Oh, okay. They had a record deal in the States, in Europe, in Japan, worldwide, yeah. not in Canada. Huh. There wasn't a label that picked it up in Canada. But you're a Canadian band. But I was a, we were a Canadian band. Everybody, yeah. yeah, everybody was Canadian in that time. And somehow they got to, it was Steve Backey, the, the drummer, he got to Brian Slagle and you know, played him some demo tapes. And Slagle said, that sounds great. I think we need to get you guys in the studio. We went to phase one and recorded. Phase it. one studio. Yeah, phase in one Toronto. Studios, yeah. I, I recorded there with uh, Terry Brown, my first yeah. real experience professionally. And my first song, it was a cut for, again, with our era, you know, I was in New Regime. Mm-hmm. When you were in Reckless, what years? Uh, Reckless was 93, 94, 95. Oh, okay. So I was before that. I was well before that. But anyway, Terry Brown, phase one, a song on a New Regime album, which was a band I was in and then quit. Ironically, I quit when we got signed. Just egos out of control sort of thing. But yeah, phase one studios in Toronto. So this is with Reckless. Oh, sorry, 84. Uh, thank you, there we go, 84. <laughs> sorry, 80, 83, 84, 85. Sense. Yeah, because 80, 81 was uh, Witch Killer. Doug never lost his musical abilities or the desires. And so in the course of the 10 years it has taken me to work out the kinks and results of my Mother Earth album, Doug also took the producer's helm for a time to work on the development of the material. 
this song is featured because Doug was with me every step of the way on recording this track, including the fact that the male chorus voices at the end are me and him and no one else. This song, which also happens to be my theme song for this podcast, is from the bonus track's fourth side of the upcoming double vinyl album release, Mother Earth. This is Better.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. So 8081, I'm in Fanshawe College studying recorded music production. 8384, I'm in New Regime. Okay. And you yeah, are in Reckless. Because yeah, I knew right. of Reckless. Yeah, yeah. And so Lost uh, a decade. Did Reckless had a deal? Reckless had a deal with um, it was EMI. Because we had we had a European deal, we had a Canadian deal, but we did not have an American deal. I wanted to have an American deal. I knew that that was the biggest thing, you know, to sell records. And Canada was at the two two percent of the industry, maybe at that time. But everybody was so anxious to sign the deal, and we did, and kind of get screwed over a little bit by management making some decisions we didn't know. Gee, that's a common story. Yeah. Screw, screwed over by management. Yeah, yeah. When we, you know, we just didn't know. We signed our life away just to get a record deal, and it was a three record deal, uh, tours all over the place, and we're supposed to go all over the world, and we believed it. I didn't like being pigeonholed. Didn't like that. Why not? Because I didn't like being told or forced what to wear. And, and like, seriously, I went from wearing, you know, a black leather vest and black leather pants to wearing a yellow blazer and nice jeans. And it was just- And your hair gets fluffed up a little more. Your hair was fluffed up. Yeah, yeah, not just all over the but place. But that was- that was the era. That was right? the era. That was the hairband era. Yeah. Yeah. 84. Yeah. Honeymoon so, Suite, Platinum Blonde, oh all God. those guys back then. Yeah. Coney Hatch. You know, yep. everybody had big hair. Rational Youth, Strange Advance, uh, Frozen Ghost. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so I can riddle off all these names because it was 84 that I began making music videos with Rob Courtley at Champion Motion Pictures. And we did Crying Over You by Platinum Blonde and Big Money by Rush and Patio Lantern's uh, Kim Mitchell. We did uh, Frozen Ghosts, Rational Youth, Strange Advance. On and on it went. We did Jane Sibbery, all these videos. You were in Reckless at the time. That's why I knew about Reckless. And I think we probably only one degree of separation between us because Honeymoon Suite were friends of mine from Fanshawe College. So Steve Prendergast, their manager and that whole, and I know that in past conversations, Derry, Mm -hmm. yeah. I remember Derry, he said the classic thing to me. It's funny because, you know, Steel Panther? Yeah. So they are doing, anybody listening, they should look this up because uh, the lead guitar player from Steel Panther is doing these comedic videos on, I'm going to teach you about the electric guitar now and they're freaking hilarious it's full tongue-in-cheek and his timing is is fantastic he said something in the video about playing how to play a solo and he's always he was harping on on because you never want to sound like mark knopfler don't ever sound like so he's very funny about it 
And Derry Grayan said the same thing to me way back when he goes, oh man, he goes, man, I, I lead solo. As long as you start on the right note and end on the right note, doesn't matter what you do in between. <laughs> just, yeah. just diddly, diddly, just diddly, diddly, diddly all the way through. But Derry, you know, I've got, I still have cassette tapes of Derry's original demo songs from before Honeymoon Suite. And he was always a good songwriter. Mm-hmm. He understood song and crafting a song together well. He teamed up with Johnny, De- Johnny. Johnny D, Johnny D. Johnny D. Yeah. I was going to say Johnny Depp, but Johnny yeah. D, mm-hmm. you know, good singer, mm-hmm. you know, had the look. Yep. All that sure. sort of stuff. And that was right. That was the era. Honeymoon Suite. Mm-hmm. Gatto. Gatto. Yeah. Well, they were a little bit before us, though, because I still but saw But they were still around. around. They were still around. Yeah. Yeah. Oddly enough, Santers. Rick Sa- Oh, yeah. And at the Gasworks, seeing yeah. all that shit. And, and that's- Now we're going back. For those listening who don't know, I mean, the Gasworks, Larry's Hideaway, the Diamond Club. I mean, if you were in rock and roll and it was 1982. 83, these were the places. Oh, I really, the late 70s. Teenage Head. Yeah. Another band. Oh, yeah, for sure. Battered Wives. Mm-hmm. And remember, I remember the Battered Wives had a logo that they eventually had to change. The, ba- the name of the band's Battered Wives and the cover of their album was a fist. You could, looking at you, like a fist at you with a lipstick kiss on the fist. Oh, my God. You, I mean, <laughs> That's no, harsh. Yeah, they had to change that even as, as early as wow. like somewhere around the early 80s. But now you, no now, way. Well, I don't know. I mean, some of these European bands and some of this shit that's out there, well, they some go, of the hip hop stuff, what they do and show. You know, they, you know, they talk about, you know, smell the glove, like yeah. Spinal Tap. You can't show a, a girl smelling your glove. Yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, you can do stuff like that now. In certain countries. Certain countries in certain ways. In certain stores. Does the the mainstream media pick up on it? If they do, you're in trouble. If they don't, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, they always will though. Sometimes it depends, you know. Okay, interesting thing, because I always get a great laugh out of songs that you will now hear in the dentist's office over, you know, CHFI or some soft radio station. They have no idea what that guy's saying. For example, my best example of this, take a walk on the wild side. You can hear it on the most ancient of soft radio stations, but she never lost her head even when she was given head. And they don't even get that that's what he's saying because they don't understand. No. There's so many lyrics like Uh, that in songs. That's funny you say that. That slipped through. So I should ask this, why didn't it work? I don't think I've ever asked you that. Why, Why didn't Reckless happen? Reckless didn't happen because the founder, which was, um, Steve Madden, he had a bit of a meltdown. He had a a drug and alcohol problem, mostly drugs. And he would fall apart on stage all the time or not show up on time. And he was a mess. And I I just had enough. It got to the point where I I said, I can't work with this guy. I can't do this. And we're fighting all the time. They want to do a new record. And we went into the studio. You're the singer still? I, I was still the singer, yeah. yeah. Still a singer, yeah. Singer and guitarist. I but was doing both. Now you're playing rock I'm playing, out, yeah. playing guitar too. So then it got to the point where it was just so bad in the studio with him. And it was just, it was a mess. And we we're going different directions. So I'm writing, he's writing. We're not writing together. And it sounded like two different records. It's going two different ways. And the image is going two different ways. And I was kind of changing my own image at that time. I was actually, believe it or not, getting more into a more clean cut, almost Gino Vanelli sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was discovering more with my voice what I wanted to do. I was even considering being a crooner. Mm-hmm. I loved that whole Tom Jones. I was always into that whole type of feel and I was going to explore that and uh, I didn't. There were hints of that around the corner. There was, you know- with me? No, with uh, oh, music, music in itself. You'd start to hear about younger men mm-hmm. uh, learning the crooning. Yeah. You know, this is pre-Michael Buble. Well, exactly. Like, he was, wasn't far from that. He was no, coming. That's right. 
He was a, he would have been a very young man at the yeah, time. I, but it that's was why I kind of thinking, oh, fuck, I missed the boat. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can do that yeah. 30 times over. Yeah, absolutely. But you didn't miss the boat. Great segue. You didn't miss the boat at all when it came to special effects. How do we get from you in Reckless and it's starting to fall apart or did it occur before that? But it how did. do we get from that into special effects? Witch Killer, actually. Witch Started Killer. Witch Killer, yeah. Uh, where I met a guy named Gord Heinford who came out and was our lighting guy. Uh, worked with a company, PSL, in Ottawa. I was doing a record with Witch Killer. After I'd done all my parts singing, he said, uh, and I was bored. And I was living in this the floor of this, this house where we were rehearsing. And just boring, like sitting around there doing nothing. It was Ottawa. There was nothing to do. And he said, well, why don't you come down to the shop and hang out with us and see how we package up shows and, and everything else. And I went, wow, oh, that sounds great. So I went down, I saw how they packaged up the lighting department, the sound department, and they had a special effects department, which was called Pyrotech back then. They had like a couple of little small six channel consoles. They couldn't do very big shows, but they had a couple of little things and a couple of pre-made pots and cabling and some uh, flash powder, which was bi binary powders, so A and B to mix it and wasn't explosive to the tour mix. And it was really cool. I saw how that whole thing went together. So Gordo said, well, why don't you come out to a show and help us out? You know, we'll pay you. I went, oh, okay. So I went out and did that and I saw how they set it all up. And then they did a corporate show and they wanted some special effects, some flash pots to go off and a couple of things called gerbs, which is a, a sparkle effect. And they said, listen, it's going to be to music. You know music. Can you push the button at that time when, when it goes off? We'll, we'll explain it to you. The, the producer will explain it. But when the music time happens, can you do it? And I went, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Sure enough, you know, I had all the controls and he showed me and it was very simple. Boom, hit it. And they were all like, that's great. That's great. Can you do next week? You know, are you available? And I happen to be available. So I started doing more and more of those on the side and I was liking it. And I was thinking, you could do much more with this. There's so many more things you can do. And they said, yeah, like what? And I said, well, how about this? Can you do this? And I'm making the shit so this up. This is your creative mind. This is my creative mind coming back. Yeah. And I'm it. thinking, wow, I mean, you know, flash pots, big fucking deal. Why don't we add this material and see if it goes red and do this and try to make this airburst paper thing. And if we see, make it look like a starburst and put it above you and explode. And all experimental. That was fun for me. I really enjoyed that. You took it next level. I took it next so, level. So, so you're having fun with that. Reckless is, uh, you know, so doing I'm, reckless. Well, I was still witch killer. That's still so witch killer. That's witch killer. So then I went on the road when toured and we brought a pyro kit with us. So Gordo came on on tour with us. Gordo that I know. Gordo. Gordo. That's Gordo Heinford. Okay. That's the guy I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, so yeah Gordo. Okay. Well, so, so you and Gordo go that far way back. back. Wow, I didn't realize that. Gordo went on the road with us when he was 15 years old. Huh. I was 20. So he was the guy that convinced me to do all that. And uh, so go on the road, take a pyro kit, blowing shit up. It was fun. Then the next band was Reckless, playing with them, still working with Pyrotech a little bit. Then they wanted to sell the, the special effects division, the PSL guys. Because Gordon and I are I'm working part-time for uh, PSL as well. Like I'm, I'm doing Reckless, I'm doing PSL, I'm, you know, because it wasn't enough to survive off of Reckless. And we were working out of this little uh, shack at Millwood in Toronto. We didn't have a lot of gigs. We did Honeymoon Suite. We did Platinum Blonde. We, uh, we did Triumph. We did a couple of things like that with Pyro, but we couldn't do two of them at the same time. We could only do one show. Mm -hmm. It kind of just went on, just paid the bills. Well, the company was getting into financial problems. So they wanted to sell that division and another division and asked me if I knew anybody. 
And I went, hmm, well, there's a couple of companies I'm sure that would be interested, you know, starting a pyro division. I said, how much do you want for it? And they said, 25 grand. So that was for the two consoles, a couple of confetti cannons, some powder material and the goodwill of the name. And I always liked the name. I always thought the name was awesome. Pyrotech is, yeah. It was, it was a, a great name. name. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, well, how am I going to get 25 grand? I went to the bank, not a chance. There was no way, no, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any collateral. I didn't have anything. So there was no money from the bank. My parents didn't have the money, couldn't give it to me. So I went to friends. Mm-hmm. Went to friends and uh, they all loaned me the money. And now, interestingly enough, without divulging details, you don't, you don't want to divulge, but these would be, friends from your past life. Yes. I'm thinking, so yeah. the darker life, yeah. so, so to speak. And I don't life, even yeah. mean darker in a bad way. It's just the other life. Yeah. These are well, my girlfriend's father helped out too. Okay. He did help out. He was actually the, the lighter life that to help it helped out. He was a very good person. A very, he believed in me. He saw I had legit. Ambition. We'll call it the legit. Part. The legit. Yeah. yeah. My other friends definitely helped out. They were, they were leasing me trucks. And yeah. I mean, they just couldn't do enough. Yeah. You know, they were just excited to see a logo on the side and they, had, they were a part of it and helping out, right? Uh, played everybody back in the first year though, but um, it- Well, that's uh, called honor, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely, Which absolutely, is- absolutely. And everybody's expecting this is gonna take three, five years. But in one year, I paid everybody back and uh, it took off pretty quick. I once had the pleasure of hosting a trip down to Peru with Doug where we climbed the mountain peak that overlooked Machu Picchu. We did San Pedro and ayahuasca ceremonies, and it gave me great joy to watch one of the rock world's busiest men lie on his back for hours on the top of a mountain, just staring at a huge condor flying overhead. Doug attempted to repay me one New Year's Eve at one of his famous parties, I think. He also took great joy in my relaxed state that night, you see, he had a big jar of Stoli Doli. You know what that is? Well, it's when you fill a big jar with Dole pineapples and Stolichnaya vodka and let it sit for 10 days before consuming. The problem is the vodka drink you extract from the spigot 10 days later tastes only like a wonderful pineapple drink. You don't taste the vodka. So I inadvertently drank, <clears throat> accidentally, mind you, a very large tumbler of delicious and seemingly innocuous juice in just a few minutes. I was thirsty. All I remember is waking up in one of the bathrooms, on the floor, hugging the toilet with the door locked the next morning. Something I hadn't done since I was 17 years old. Doug, who had been looking for me for many hours, discovered me and let out a loud expression of much enjoyment that me, his body, also one of the busiest men in film work, was finally relaxing. Yeah, I don't think that counts, Doug. So no, we're not even. That's where I'm going to hold us for part one of the story of rock and roll special effects master Doug Adams. In part two, Doug brings us into the history of special effects as it pertains to his work with artists such as Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, and Metallica. Check it out. Our very own engineering special effects master is Keith Oman, and we are a proud member of the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Hey, Terry, it's not too late for your mid-80s hair metal band to make it big. Let's get that demo tape out there. Stick around for more, everyone. We'll figure this life out together. Oh, wait, hang on. My new series, Wild Harvest, is airing now on American Public Television. 
check to see which station's signal reaches your area. And that includes, by the way, Canada. It's all about local foraging. I take you out and teach you what you can gather for a wild edible feast. A feast prepared by a five-star chef, Paul Rogalski. As well, head over to my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Les Stroud, where I'm uploading tons of free content weekly for you to enjoy, including archives, Survivor Man, Survivor Man Bigfoot, director's commentaries, and new music, just to mention a bit of what's there. The secret, by the way, is to click on the playlists. Lastly, and in time for Christmas, the second printing of my 20th anniversary film collection, featuring 76 films, is available through my website, lesstroud.ca. Okay, thanks. Go ahead. What are you waiting for? Click on subscribe. And then click on something else. Or, go be productive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 